Good evening once again. Tonight, obviously, we are going to continue our series in biblical theology. Just as a reminder, biblical theology is where we take a topic or a theme or a doctrine and we trace it all the way through the canon from Genesis to Revelation. And thus far, we have examined the topics of temple and we looked last time at sonship in Scripture through the temptation narrative in Luke chapter 4. Tonight, we're going to cover two topics in one lecture. So you get two times the benefit, hopefully, for none, no extra price. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, the two topics that we're going to cover tonight are the incarnation and the image of God. Now, that's, those are two big topics, which means that we're not going to cover either of them exhaustively. That would take a minimum of four lectures apiece to do that, and still we probably wouldn't get it done. So there are going to be certain verses, uh, certain portions of Scripture that you could think of that would be directly relevant to the topic that we may not touch on tonight, and that's okay, because our goal is to look at these two topics, particularly as they overlap with one another, and they help to mutually interpret the meaning of each one. Now, we're going to tackle these in the following order. The Incarnation first. We're going to look at all of the biblical data that we can related to the Incarnation from Genesis all the way through to the New Testament. But eventually we're going to come upon some questions, questions that need answering. And we won't be able to answer those questions unless we bring in that second topic, the image of God in the Scriptures. All right? So let's begin with the Incarnation. I want to read real quickly from our Confession of Faith Chapter 8, in paragraph 2, on Christ the Mediator, we read this. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things He hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet... Without sin, being conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so he was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. And this person is very God and very man, yet one Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. Now that is a wonderful statement of the incarnation, beautifully consistent with Scripture, but I want you to notice a key phrase in there. It says that the incarnation took place when the fullness of time had come. What that means is that the incarnation took place in history, in time and space. The incarnation has not been from eternity past. The incarnation was not in the Old Testament. The incarnation took place between the writing of Malachi and the writing of the New Testament at the time of, obviously, the life of Mary, his mother. And so if we're going to do a biblical theology of the incarnation where we go through the Old Testament all the way through, it might seem a little odd that we're going to pick a topic that seemingly wouldn't apply to the Old Testament because it happened after the Old Testament. But I think what we're going to find tonight is that if we look back in God's Word, all the way back in Genesis, we find that the foundations of the Incarnation were actually laid long before Jesus ever took on flesh. And so we're going to go back, and we're going to go through the Old Testament, and I want to trace, I want to chase two lines of Old Testament evidence with you that point us to the Incarnation. The first 
are the theophanies of the Old Testament. And then the second will be the witness of the prophets. Let's start with the theophanies. I don't need to tell most of the people in this room that there are a handful of fascinating episodes in the Old Testament where it appears that God, who is invisible, outside of time and space, not able to be detected with human senses in and of himself, appears to men in their everyday context. So what is a theophany? A theophany is an appearance of God in time and space. It's to be distinguished from the incarnation, but we'll get to that. So we're going to go through, and we're going to look at these different theophonic episodes, and we're going to assert that these weren't random. Oftentimes we think of them as kind of random when they come about, when we encounter them. We're like, where did this come from? But if we pay careful attention to the text, these theophanies took place at very specific points in redemptive history and were used by God to make very strong theological points. So let's go first, you can flip through these if you'd like to, to Genesis chapter 16. In Genesis chapter 16, you know the story, Sarai and Hagar. Sarai is giving Hagar to Abram because she is not able to have any children. And so Abram goes into Hagar and she conceives and she has to bear a child. But then Sarai gets jealous of her mistress Hagar and kicks her out into the desert. And then we read this in verse 7. As Hagar is wandering about in the desert, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord then goes on to describe the child that she is to have. Now, if that's where we stopped, we would think, okay, so the angel of the Lord has come. But then something fascinating happens in verse 13. We read, So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Now, that was the angel of the Lord. And yet, right after the angel of the Lord gets done speaking, we are told that the one was, was speaking to her was Yahweh. Now, you might say, well, the, Yahweh was speaking through the angel of the Lord. That's all that the text means. It was still just the angel of the Lord speaking, but Yahweh was speaking through her. But then Hera, confe uh, sorry, Hagar confesses, I have seen him who looks after me. Now, that's not introducing the concept of guardian angel. She's talking about Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who looks after me. He's the one who's cared for me, and I have seen him by seeing the angel of the Lord. And that's all we're given. But at the very least, we can conclude this. God appeared to Hagar in some physical, tangible form. She was not overwhelmed. This was not this bright light being descending from the clouds. It didn't take her by surprise. She may have known he was special, but it seems to have been a somewhat ordinary appearance outside of giving a prophecy. And then we're left to fill in the details on our own. After that, we get the covenant of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, where God promises to give Abram the seed that, he will, that will come from the loins of his wife Sarai, and then he circumcises all of the males in his house. And then we come to Genesis chapter 18. That's where we're going to be for the next several minutes. And maybe outside of the text we're going to get to next with Jacob wrestling with the angel, this is one of the strangest 
and most fascinating texts in all of Scripture. Remember, Abram has been promised the seed, but Sarai has not. She has not yet received the promise directly from God. And so we read this in Genesis 18 and verse 1. Abram is sitting down, and Yahweh appears to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat and looked from his tent at the heat of the day. Now, Yahweh appears to Abram in this text. So what's going to happen? He's going to look up, and what's he going to see? What's Yahweh going to be like? And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Yahweh appears to him, and what does he see? He sees three men. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent of the door to meet him, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And then he commands that food and water be brought to these three men. And they bring it to him, and they sit down under the tree and begin to eat. And he said, they said to him, Where is Sarai, your wife? And he said, Well, she is in the tent. And then Yahweh says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years, and the way of the woman had ceased with her. So she laughed to herself and said, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Once again, at the appointed time, I will return to you next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. So we have three men who sit down, and they eat food with Abram. They're physical. They're tangible. You don't walk up to them and put your hand through them, and there's some kind of apparition or hologram. They're physical. The, the food from the earth can go into their teeth and they can crunch it. They can sit on a stool and they don't drop through the stool. There's pressure applied both ways. They're physical. They have some kind of form and substance and yet they are Yahweh. Yahweh speaking. They're not the representatives of Yahweh. They are Yahweh. And then from there, they get up and the three men set out and go towards Sodom along with Abraham. And you know how the story goes from here. They go out, and they have a conversation amongst themselves, and then two of the men go down to Sodom, while Abram stays up and talks to one of them. And when the two go down to Sodom, they're called the angel of the Lord who goes down. And the one who stays up with Abraham is once again referred to as Yahweh. And then Abram has that little interchange with Yahweh where he says, well, if you find, if you find ten righteous men, if you find five, if you find one righteous man, will you destroy the city? And he's, he intercedes with Yahweh. But he's standing there with a physical man looking down at the, at the city of Sodom as two of the angels go in. And then the two angels get into the city of Sodom, and the men don't, of Sodom don't find anything unusual about their appearance. They don't look and go, oh, the, look at those winged creatures that are coming through the city of Sodom. No, they look like men. That's why they want to have sex with them, because they look like actual, tangible men. They don't look impressive in any way or, or divine or anything. So they're physical men, three of them. And they say to Lot, we are going to destroy this city. And God says, I will destroy this city. So which is it? Well, it's fascinating that at the very end of this whole exchange, we read in chapter 19 and verse 23, that the sun had risen on earth when Lot came to Zor, and then the Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Yahweh out of heaven. Now, that's a very strange verse. 
Yahweh rained sulfur and fire from the Yahweh out of heaven. Now, who's the Yahweh in heaven? Well, he was the one who was talking to Abraham, who then went back to his place. And yet the two men who said, we will destroy it, are raining sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Yahweh out of heaven. So you have, you have two Yahwehs here? You have three Yahwehs? What's going on? We have Yahwehs in Sodom and Gomorrah who are destroying it. And we have the Yahweh in heaven who's also sending down the sulfur and fire. And there seems to be this confusion. Is this God? Are there three gods? What's going on here? But we know this. They are physical, tangible men who are described as Yahweh. And they destroy the city. Now thinking about those two episodes that we just went through... I want you to notice that they weren't entirely random episodes. They had a specific historical redemptive purpose. When Yahweh appears to Hagar in the wilderness and announces that he is still going to protect her, he's still going to give her an offspring, and that he will, as it says later on in Genesis, he will actually prosper this offspring, Yahweh is announcing that even though he's making this covenant with Abram and his line, he still has mercy on whom he will. He still has mercy on some people outside of the covenant line, foreshadowing the day when those who were not sons by nature would be brought in and called sons. And in the episode of Sodom and Gomorrah, Yahweh is foreshadowing here, as we see in the, the New Testament very often, this story is appealed to as a foreshadowing of the final great eschatological judgment that is going to come. God actually feels the need to come in physical form to demonstrate his wrath against a sinful and idolatrous city and to foreshadow that, yes, ultimately, judgment is coming against sin. He appears in physical form to announce these things. Then we come to Genesis chapter 32. Starting in verse 22. Jacob is afraid of Esau, and he is heading toward an encounter with his older brother, whom he tricked into stealing the birthright from. And as he's on the way, we get this, as what Martin Luther called one of the most dark and mysterious episodes in all of the scriptures. Starting in verse 22, we read this. That same night, Jacob arose and took two of his wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip, and his hip socket, and his hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Notice once again, Jacob encounters a man, he's not special. He's clearly about the same size as Jacob because there is equal strength being asserted back and forth. That's why they can wrestle for so long and one doesn't immediately destroy the other. He's a man. They can touch. 
They can struggle against one another. He's not glowing. He's not exceptionally powerful. And yet, at the very end of the whole thing, Jacob says he was God that he was struggling against. Now, why on earth would God appear in physical form to Jacob and wrestle with him? And I must admit that I'm still studying this text, and I have a feeling there's a lot more to it than I understand. But I think one of the things that becomes clear is that God appears in this episode to show that he intends to dwell with men and to bless them, and that it is possible for man to strive with God, not in the sense of conflict, but to strive with God and yet not die. And then all of God's people end up bearing the name which he has given here. We are the true Israel, those who strive with God. God appears once again at a, his, at a, a very important point in redemptive history in physical form to demonstrate something. Exodus chapter 3. That's where we'll go next. I think Paul referenced this one in the morning sermon. The episode of the burning bush. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, there's that guy again, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, we often emphasize, what, the burning bush. But the burning bush is not the only thing in this episode. Who's in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord is in the burning bush. He appears out of it. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw, when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. So the angel of the Lord is in the bush, and yet it's God who's speaking from the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then he says that he is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face. Why? Because he was afraid to look at God. To look at God. I thought God was invisible in and of himself, yes. And yet once again, the angel of the Lord appears, and it's Yahweh himself in physical form. Now what's the significance of this episode? Well, obviously, the burning bush is what kicks off the whole inauguration of the promises of Abraham, where God redeems the seed of Abraham, brings them out of Egypt, out of their bondage to slavery, and actually begins to organize them as a people, as a nation, going into a land. So once again, at a crucial point in redemptive history, God feels the need to appear, not just to talk to somebody, but to actually appear physically before somebody. Exodus chapter 24, I love this text. I promise, we won't just do this the whole time. But I think it's important to see these episodes. In Exodus chapter 24, the Ten Commandments have been spoken previously by God. But the covenant is yet to be confirmed. And we read in verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw him. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. I think this is beautiful. 
Here you have men who see God. Now, people have seen God in all the episodes we've seen in the past, but this time it's different. In the past, he looked like a man. He had a physical appearance. He could walk amongst unregenerate men, and they didn't look and see anything exceptional about him. But not this time. This time, God appears, and there is radiant sapphire under his actual feet. His glory is shining. It's what we read in the next few verses. The, the glory is shining off of the mountain as God comes down here. He's different. He's magnificent to behold. And yet, the point is, they see him, and they don't die. And not only that, they eat and drink with God. They eat and drink with God, whom they can see with their eyes. Now, in the, in the Hebrew way of thinking, to, and I'm sure you all are familiar with this, to share a meal is the ultimate sign of peace between two parties. When you sit down to a meal, that shows that there is uh, a friendship, a lack of, of enmity between the two. Now, why that's important is because this text comes right in the middle of some very harsh things that are happening in the book of Exodus. God has already given the ten words, the ten commands, which thunder out the condemnation of the people. The book of the covenant was about to be given unto the people, where the two tablets of stone are actually presented. The thundering of the, of the mountain where the people say, we are going to die, that's right around this episode. It seems like God is fully against the people because He is so holy and they are so sinful. And yet in the midst of that, God appears and has a meal with the elders of Israel. God shows that His intention is to be at peace with His saints. That's what we see in this text. we got about two more to go. Three more. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Notice what we've seen. When, when is God appearing? He's giving promises to Abraham and to his offspring that the people, a covenant will, will, will come from their lines, a nation. He does the same when he appears to Jacob and gives him the name of Israel. He appears when he is about to rescue the people out of the land of Egypt. He appears as he gives the law which condemns to show that his intention is still to have peace. And so this trajectory continues in Joshua chapter 5. The people are about to enter the land. The very land that God had promised to the people of Israel is their possession. And in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13 we read this. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then we read in chapter 6, verse 2, The Lord Yahweh said to Joshua, this is the same conversation, same context, Yahweh says to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. A man appears to Joshua, and yet Joshua can bow down and worship him, and he takes it. He accepts it. You remember the story of when John bows before the angel in Revelation. He says, No, you better not do that. You give worship to only God. And yet this man, who is the commander of the armies of the Lord, sits there and watches Joshua drop down prostrate and has no problem with it whatsoever. And then he speaks. 
and it says Yahweh is talking to Joshua. Now, once again, the guy doesn't appear to be out of the ordinary. Why? Because Joshua goes up and says, he's not sure who this is. Are, are you for us or for our adversaries? It's not like the angel, the archangel of the Lord, comes down with his glorious, glowing, winged creature with his sword drawn and he's thrashing down the Assyrians. He appears somewhat ordinary, and yet he's God in human form. Now, just for the sake of time, I'll summarize the episodes in, Josh, I'm sorry, in Judges, both with Gideon and with the parents of Samson. Once again, God, the angel of the Lord, appears to them and begins to speak. And in each case, they think they're going to die because they've seen God. And yet it was a man who they fed and who ate their food and, and was tangible and was physical. And in those episodes, the Lord is announcing that he still intends to protect his people. Even though they are being oppressed by the powers of the world, by the Philistines and all those around him, his promises have not failed. And he appears in physical form to confirm that. And then finally, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, thank you for being patient through the first part of this. I know we're, we're, we're churning here. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel is a boy serving in the midst of the tabernacle with Eli. And God begins to call to him over and over, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel thinks it's Eli who's talking to him. And eventually, Eli figures out what's going on and says, no, no, it's the Lord. You wait for him. And then we read that the Lord came and stood before Samuel. And they talked. Now, we're not told what the form was. We're not told what he looked like. We're not told any of that stuff. But we're told that God came and stood before Samuel in the midst of the tabernacle where it says he walks back and forth. And they dwell together. And he gives him a message for Eli. Now, that was in the context of a people languishing for the lack of God's word. They just come out of the period of the judges where there's no meaningful leadership. Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. And the Lord comes in physical form and announces... It's about to change. The prophetic office is about to really kick in, and God is about to anoint Samuel as a prophet. So then, that was the bulk of the exegetical work, even though it was very cursory. Those are the theophanies of the Old Testament. Now, so far, we've noted their significance for the people of the Old Testament as it occurred in those times. But the reality is that each of those instances where God chose to appear in physical form actually wonderfully foreshadows some aspect of the work of Christ. You see, when God comes to Hagar in the desert, he's foreshadowing that those who were estranged shall be called near. When God comes in physical form to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he's foreshadowing that he will, in fact, come with a physical man to judge the world, the man Christ Jesus. When God comes in physical form and wrestles with Jacob and he is named Israel, it's demonstrating that God is going to come and save his people and bless them as he blessed Jacob. And as God came in the midst of the Exodus and saved his people out of the hand of the Egyptians, so the Lord Jesus comes and saves his people, takes a host of captives captive with him from their sins. And so we can say this, that in the Old Testament... The theophanies are meant to point us to the incarnation. Why did God appear all those times in physical form? To foreshadow the time when God would come truly in physical form and do everything that he was doing in the Old Testament in its greater and surer fulfillment. But I want you to notice, where did the theophany stop in the Old Testament? We just got through the very beginning of 1 Samuel. A lot of Old Testament left until Malachi. 
But from that point forward, you'll not find another meaningful theophany. Sometimes God appears to the prophets in their visions in a physical form, at least what looks like a physical form, but not in time and space where the people around them can also see it. That's pretty much the end of the theophanies. Why then? Because what's about to happen at the end of, at the beginning of 1 Samuel? They've got the priesthood set up. They're about to get the office of prophet instituted with Samuel. And right after that, Samuel's going to anoint the first king. They're about to have prophet, priest, and king all functioning in the nation of Israel. And so God sort of withdraws himself from coming physically and allows that threefold human office to stand in for his presence. But that doesn't mean that the talk of the incarnation or the, the pointing forward to the incarnation ceases at that time. Because even though he stops coming in theophonic form, the prophets begin to step in and speak into the midst of that situation. And so then the second line of evidence we're going to trace forward here is the prophetic witness. The prophets begin to step in and predict the incarnation along two lines. The, I got this from B.B. From Warfield, and I think he's spot on. See, we, we pastors, well, I can't call myself pastor. We who get up here often read other people, and so not everything we say is a perfectly original thought. I know that's shocking to you. But uh, the prophets say this, God is coming. God is coming. They announce it over and over. We're going to read some of the passages. And then at the same time, they say a man is coming. A man is coming to see you. Let's look at some of the passages where the prophets say that God is coming. In Isaiah chapter 35, we read the following. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with the joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh and the majesty of our God. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come to you with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and He will save you. There you have it. Isaiah says God is coming to his people. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. Go up onto the mountains and herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald the good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, Yahweh God is coming with might and his arm rules for him. Isaiah chapter 52 Verses 7 through 8. A verse we're all familiar with. Behold, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up the voice. Together they sing for joy. Eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh, the coming of Yahweh to Zion. Yahweh is coming to Zion. And then finally, in Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 3, you don't have to flip there on this one. It's a long way to flip. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Yahweh says, I will come to Zion. And that's just a small smattering over and over the prophets say, Yahweh's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He has come. He has appeared in theophonic form in the past, yes. But he is coming to you, Israel. 
And yet at the same time, they can say that the immaterial, timeless being of God is coming to them. They can turn around and say, ah, yes, but that's not all Israel. For a man is coming to you. In Isaiah, once again, Isaiah wrote a lot of good things. In Isaiah chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you must weary your God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. They're sending a son. A woman will conceive. You know, conception. That means a human being is coming. And they will call his name God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So now you have the man coming, but he's not just a man. He's even going to bear the name Mighty God in and of himself. And Jeremiah, just do a couple more. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and deal wisely and will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Jeremiah goes on to describe the fact that God will send David to rule as king over them, even though David's already dead. Micah talks about the one who will rule Jerusalem from Bethlehem, who will be raised up and will shepherd the flock of God. And Daniel says that he sees a son of man coming who will have all dominion and authority and power. You see, God is coming, yes, but a, but a man is coming at the same time. Now, think about that for a second. If you're a Jew and you have no concept of the incarnation, how are you to make sense of those two lines of what the prophets are saying? Can you understand why there might have been a little confusion in the days of Jesus amongst the rabbis about how they were to put all of this together? I don't think any of us would have figured it out. But as B.B. Warfield says, the Old Testament is like a dimly lit room where you can see some outlines and some forms and some shadows, but when the light of the New Testament revelation comes upon it, now it all makes sense. And that's the case for us. We look back and we see, well, of course, obviously, God's coming, a man's coming, uh, a God-man. There it is. But it wasn't so for them. That's why Paul calls this the mystery that has been revealed, because they didn't understand it. In fact, in the Gospels, the, we read a couple of times that God actually hardened the hearts of the disciples so that they wouldn't understand these things until the appointed time. So that's what the prophets say. They speak. God is coming and man is coming. And then that fullness of time that we read about in the confession, well, it comes. And into the midst of all of that, all of the appearances of God in physical form in the Old Testament, all of the words of the prophets, the God-man comes... He's born in Bethlehem, and then John helps to, to summarize it all in the very beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
There it is. The synthesis of everything that the Old Testament had to say about the coming one. John puts it right together. He's God. And yet he took on flesh. And he tabernacled amongst us. So that's the incarnation. At least as it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So then, what are the purposes of the Incarnation? Why did the Incarnation actually take place? Why would God become a man? Now, you may have heard of the, uh, I can't call him a church father because he lived too late. He lived in the year, in the 11th century, in the 1000s. His name was Anselm. He wrote a book called Cur de Homus Deo. Deo Homus, one of the two. I don't speak Latin. It means, why the God-man? And he took up this exact question. Why would God become a man? We can be told all day long by the Old Testament in types and shadows that it's coming. John can tell us that it happened. But what is the significance of it? Well, here are the most common reasons, and I agree with them, why the incarnation took place. First of all, the need for intercession. You see, sin creates an enmity in a division between God and man. You all know this. Adam had intimate fellowship in the presence of God in the garden. And then he sinned. And now man can't enter into his presence without absolute death. That's the message of the whole Old Testament. That's why you were to be killed if you were to enter into God's dwelling place and you had not gone through the proper rituals. You can't come. You're too sinful. There's an absolute, complete gap between God and man due to sin. And Job recognized that. That's why he said, I, I, there's got to be someone who can put his hand on both me and, and God. There's got to be someone who can come between and bridge this gap because he knows he's sinful and he knows that God is holy and so therefore we have to have a mediator. And a mediator must be able, as you know, to partake of both the one party over here and the other party over here so that he can properly mediate between both. Well, if God and man are both at odds with one another, who or what type of person can possibly come between them? What's well, going to have to be God, man, God as man. The need for intercession is one of the reasons that he came. But not only the need for intercession, not only do we need someone to stand and plead, we need propitiation. We need a sacrifice for sins. Because the mediator's got to have something to mediate. He can't just stand there and plead with words. If there's a real division that's been caused between God and man, something objective's got to come to heal the gap. And that's called propitiation, a turning away of the wrath of God. And so if a sacrifice is going to be made for sin, the sacrifice is going to have to, at one and the same time, be something that can die, because as the Scripture says, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. It's going to have to be able to die, and yet at the same time the sacrifice is going to have to be so perfect that it can satisfy the infinite demands of God's justice and wrath. How are you going to come up with something like that? There's only one way. God as man. The incarnation. So propitiation is needed. The third reason is to affirm the goodness of the physical order in light of sin. God's coming as man helped to defend against the early Gnosticism in the early church, which taught that the world was evil. And God says, no, the world is good. In fact, it's so good as I had created it originally that I'm even going to come in and enter into it as part of my own creation. It reaffirms the goodness of that. But I want you to notice something. All of the typical reasons that are given for the incarnation have to do with sin. Every single one of those was a result of sin. The need for a mediator. The need for atonement. The need to reaffirm the goodness of the creation in the light of sin. All of that is only due to the fact that there is an enmity 
between God and man. And so it almost makes the incarnation seem like it was merely a response to what happened in the garden, doesn't it? So that we would be led to believe that if the garden had never occurred in terms of the fall, well, there would have been no incarnation. But is that the case? Well, I want to consider this with you in the last... Oh, well, we haven't been... We've only been going for a little over half an hour. You guys are good. I want to consider that question. Is the incarnation merely a response to sin? And to do that, we're now going to bring in the concept of the image of God. Now, when I say image of God, what comes immediately to your mind? For almost everybody, you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. He made them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And that's true. But I want to suggest that the image of God in Scripture goes much deeper and that the primary example of the image of God in Scripture is not man. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, and you can flip there, we have a very important text. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, we read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, full stop right there. Who is the image? I thought man was. Well, he is. But here Paul tells us that Christ is the image of God. But what does it mean that Christ is the image of God? Well, if you were to ask... What do we typically think of when we say that we are in the image of God? If you ask the average person, the fact that we're made in the image of God says what about us? You're going to get something along the lines of, well, the fact that we're made in the image of God means that we're rational creatures, unlike the animals, because God is a rational being. Uh, we are moral creatures, unlike the animals, because God is the ultimate moral being in that sense. Uh, and we're relational, just as God is relational. And so those are the main aspects of the image of God in us. And I affirm every single one of those as true. But when we ask the question, what does it mean that Christ is the image of God? It can't just mean that Christ is a rational being, Christ is a moral being, and that Christ is a relational being. Why? Because then the Holy Spirit will be the image of God too. The Holy Spirit is all of those things. And so when Paul says that Christ is the image of God, he's got to have something more specific than that in mind. So then what is he talking about? What is the function of an image of something? An image is meant to reveal the essential properties and characteristics of the thing that it is imaging. Yes? If I take a child and I sh who's never seen one of the documentaries before and I show him a picture of a lion, he's going to be able to look at that image and go, oh, okay, this thing is uh, it's a four-legged creature, it's got, it's got sharp teeth, some fangs, a mane, it, it looks kind of like a cat or something like that. And he's deducing essential properties of the thing by looking at the image. The image reveals the thing that it is imaging. So when Paul says Christ is the image of the invisible God, that means it's Christ's job to reveal the Father. To reveal the essential properties of the Father. So in other words, when you look at the Son, you see the Father. And isn't that exactly what he said? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But what's fascinating about this text is that Paul doesn't limit the function of Christ being the image of God merely to his incarnation. You see, we often think we know that Christ is the image of God, but we think that's because he took on flesh and we can see him. 
that that's why he's the image of God. I don't have time to, to go through. I would love to do a full exegesis of verses 15 through 20 here. But if you pay attention, this text, verses 15 through 20 in Colossians chapter 1, is divided into two parts. In the first part, Paul discusses who Christ is in and of himself, like from eternity past. He is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was the created being. That means he is the heir of all creation. He stands above creation. He's superior to creation, and all creation comes to him because he stands above it. By him, all things were created. Well, if he's created, then he would be in the all things, and he would have to create himself. So he's outside of creation here. Paul's talking about Christ ontologically as he is in himself. All things were created in the heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then we get down to verse 18, and Paul starts discussing who Christ is as he took on flesh. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the firstborn from the dead, his resurrection after he took on flesh. That in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. There's your incarnation. So Paul's divided it up. And when Paul says he's the image of God, he puts that in the eternal category not in the incarnation, which means that Christ has been the image of God from all eternity, all eternity. Now, if it is the job of an image to reveal something, then who was Christ revealing the Father to in all of eternity before creation even took place? The answer is the Father. Think about it. What did Proverbs chapter 8 say? He was ever before me. He was, he was always my delight. The Father, speaking of the Son. From all eternity, the Father has looked at the Son, and He has seen all the fullness of what makes Him beautiful in the Son, and He delights in it. What else is God going to delight in but God? And Christ has always been that image that reflects God back to God. So Christ as the image of God goes far beyond the, the incarnation. It precedes it. It goes back to all eternity. And yet I'm going to also assert that Christ being the image of God, though it was true before the incarnation, is the very thing that gives rise to the incarnation. Think with me for just another moment. If it is Christ's nature to reveal the Father to others, He's going to reveal the Father to another thing in accordance with the nature of the one to whom he's revealing. Let me say that again. If Christ reveals the Father to someone, he's going to have to reveal them to him in a way that the person who's receiving the revelation can understand according to their nature. Does that make sense? Now, God is spirit. And so in eternity past, as the Son reveals the Father to the Father, he needs no form to do this, does he? No, because the Father does not take in information in the way that a physical creature does. But once God creates man and determines to reveal himself to that man, he's going to have to do so according to the nature of man. And what is man? We are body, soul, and mind creatures. I'm not trying to get into a debate about how many parts are within man. We can talk about that at dinner sometime if you're interested. But man is mind, body, and spirit. Now, how does God reveal uh, himself to us in our spirit? Because his law is written upon our hearts. He is written upon our hearts. As Calvin said, we, there's no point in which we know ourselves that we don't know God. Because he's already within us. He's put the knowledge of himself in our spirit. He reveals himself to our mind when he speaks. And we can take in that revelation. 
But we are also physical creatures. We take in information through our eyes and our, our ears and our tongues and our noses. We have senses. And so if all of that is true of us and Christ is going to reveal the Father to us in a way that is perfectly suited to our capacity as creatures, what is the ultimate way for him to do that? To take on flesh and walk among us so that we can look and say, oh, there's what God's like. I see it. I see what he's doing over there. Oh, yes, that is what the Father's like, isn't it? Oh, I hear him speak. Yes. Oh, yes, he's communicating the truths of God to me. Yes, I see it. I look and there's my king. I know exactly where I can go. Should I need revelation? Should I need something from him? And none of those, I'm sorry, that reason right there, the fact of the incarnation being suited to our needs as creatures has nothing to do with sin. But to culminate all this, let's go one step further. Would that not have been true in the garden as well before the fall? Would it not have been perfectly suited to the needs of Adam as a creature in his constitutional makeup to reveal the Father to him in that exact same way? And so what I'm going to submit to you, and I hope to prove this to you in the last few minutes, is this. The goal of all of creation has, and the goal of Adam's obedience was the incarnation. Think back to Genesis for just a moment. Genesis chapter 3. Right after the fall takes place, we have that wonderful text in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Adam and Eve have sinned. And then we read this. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of of the garden. Okay, now, when people typically think of what was going on in the Garden of Eden, they, most people think Adam and Eve existed as creatures and God was with them, but God was, God is spirit. He's eternal. He doesn't exist in any human form. And so he was communicating to them, yes, but it was either in their minds or maybe he was doing like the baptism of Jesus thing where he sends the voice down from heaven, something like that. But God never revealed himself physically to Adam and Eve because, he, well, he, he doesn't have flesh. And, and yet we're told here that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. Now, you could try and make that a metaphor. You can. Maybe it was God was sending a, a, a strong breeze through the trees to signal his presence. And, and that's just the sound of him moving. And so we describe that as walking. You can try and make it a metaphor. But if you do their reaction makes no sense. Because if all God was to them was this omnipresent, immaterial thing that existed everywhere, and they knew that because they had walked with him before metaphorically, and wherever they went, there's God, and God can talk to us over here and over here. It doesn't matter where we go. He's everywhere. If that's how they knew God, then it makes absolutely no sense to think you can get away from him by putting some leaves in front of your face. Now, you can try and say, well, they were immature, they were like silly little children or something. But they walked with God without sin. You and I haven't. I don't buy the excuse that they were just acting like toddlers who didn't know any better. They knew God. In some ways, 
more intimately than we have because they've experienced God without the presence of sin in their lives. And so if they're hiding from God, that must mean that they think he's localized, tangible, he has eyes that can see, and that if they hide, they actually have a chance of getting away from him. And in that sense, the Lord God walking in the garden with them seems like a pretty literal thing. So then who was it? Who's the one who walked with them in the garden? Well, whose job is it to reveal the Father? It's the sons. So what I'm suggesting to you is that Christ walked with Adam in the garden. Now, am I saying that Christ was incarnate in the garden? Nope. Incarnation didn't take place until the fullness of time. So what was it? It was a theophany, just like the ones we saw in the Old Testament. And what is the purpose of the theophany? What was the purpose of all of the theophanies that God did in the Old Testament? To point men to the incarnation. The reason that God appears in physical form is in some sense to point men to the reality that it's coming. I'm coming in fullness permanently someday. And so as Christ walks theophonically with Adam in the garden, he is announcing to him that there's something bigger. There's something more. There's a greater goal here for you than just dwelling in the garden forever. Something far more glorious if he would obey the commands of God. If he succeeds in the covenant of works, his reward is not just glory. He doesn't just get to go to heaven. His reward is Christ. The fulfillment of God walking with him in the garden made permanent forever in glory. So for us, the goal of, glory, the goal of salvation is glory, yes. But the goal of glory is always Christ. The goal of glory is always Christ. There's no point in getting to glory if there's no Christ. And that's not just true for you and I. If Christ is the ultimate crowning jewel that a man could ever possess, then he was that for Adam too. And think about how wonderful that is. For all of eternity, these sinful men who take in revelation through their mind and their senses are going to look and they're going to see and they're going to behold God before their face in His fullness. And, and we're going to look at Christ's actions and we're going to say, Oh my goodness, yes, that's beautiful. I love that. There's my God. And I dwell with Him in fullness of communion bond, not as some ethereal spirit that I never see or intangible, intangible form, but I get to go up to Him and I get to touch Him and he speaks to me. That is the goal of all of this. Christ is not an afterthought, a plan B in response to sin. The ultimate goal of all of creation and of all of glorified humanity has always been to get Christ to put on flesh so that he can reveal the Father to us in his absolute perfection and fullness. Now think about that. How should you view Christ if the ultimate goal 
of all of the universe has been just to get him. Just to get him. He is the pearl of great price. He is the crowning jewel of creation and of all of eternity. What I want you to get out of this is that the incarnation is the zenith, the pinnacle of all of biblical theology and all of our piety. The incarnation does not just pop up in Genesis chapter 3 after man falls and God promises the seed who will crush the serpent's head. It predates that. It's been the plan of God. In all of the counsels of the Godhead from all of eternity, they knew what is the ultimate goal? What are we going for here? We're going for Christ. Why was creation created? Solely to be an arena for Christ. That's it. So that now... The Godhead says, you know what? We love this Christ. We got this Christ here. He's wonderful. We got to show him off. We got to give him. So uh, what are we going to do? I know. Let's make some mud creatures and set Christ before these mud creatures just so that they can enjoy him as much as we do. But he's going to need somewhere to dwell. So uh, let's, make, let's make a universe and let's put some gases in it and, uh, and an atmosphere in the world and we'll, we'll put some dirt on it so that Christ can come and he can walk and he can actually dwell with his people there. The whole universe's existence is Christ. Do you know how radical that is? How radical that is. When you look out into the world and the scientist tells you, well, now you see we're just this one little space dust molecule in the corner of the universe and there's all this empty space and it's totally meaningless. You say, no, why was that created? That was created for Christ. That was created so that we could have Christ. So then let's conclude this in the last two or three minutes by turning toward ourselves. Because though I've hopefully gone through some of the relationship between the image of God and the incarnation, I have not fully filled out what it means for us to be in the image of God. Because even though Christ is the preeminent image, we are still His image. And there's two, very quickly, two broad categories that have to do with us as image of God. Colossians says that Christ is the image of God, and Genesis says we are made in the image of God. So you are actually made in Christ's image by nature. And not just you, but actually all of humanity is made in the image of God. It's been perverted and distorted by sin, but objectively, humans are made in Christ's image in some sense, because He is the image of God and we are made in that image. Christ's job is to reflect all the attributes of God and that's exactly what mankind was to do in the garden, wasn't it? He was to be holy as God was holy. He was to work as God worked. He was to take dominion as God had dominion. In His nature and His actions, mankind is to image or reflect who God is within His creaturely realm. So the first sense is we are all made in the image of God in the fact that we are, we are to be holy and we are to have dominion. We are to do what God does. But we have to make a very important distinction. In redemption, we who are regenerated are made new creatures in Christ. And in that sense, we are redeemed image bearers of Christ in a new way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. In other words, 
those who are created from Adam are just like Adam. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who have heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of God. So what that means is this. In creation, our image reflects the image of Christ because we are made objectively in God's image. But in the new birth, we take on the image of Christ as resurrected Messiah. Where is Christ now? He's in glory. He's glorified. And as we are made in His image, recreated anew in His image, it is an announcement that we too are to be glorified, perfected beings. Adam was made in the image of God, but he was not glorified. You and I are remade in Christ's image as that image now exists in glory. And so, as we come to an end, the central goal of all of creation has always been Christ. We are made in the image of Christ. We are to be like Him. And the opposite concept of image of God in Scripture is idolatry. Because in idolatry, you invert the incarnation, don't you? In the incarnation, God comes down to the created realm. But in your idolatry, you take something from the created realm and you raise it up to where God is. And if the ultimate goal is Christ, then all of your idolatry is an absolute blasphemous assault upon His face. For every idol that you create is a statement that God is a liar and that the ultimate joy is not Christ. It's something else. So as you examine your heart this week, as you put into practice what Paul has been preaching to us, think about your Christ. Think about Him. Every time that temptation comes up, put Christ before you. Just picture yourself slapping Him in the face when you give in to that sin. He is so worthy. Let's go after Him.